miss the show, no worries on Point On the podcast. Promising vaccines is one thing. Delivering is a whole other matter. General Hillier joins me to set expectations. And it is the issue of vaccines that is doing the most damage to the prime minister right now because he can make these promises. But polling shows a huge majority of Canadians aren't just angry we're being left behind. They do not buy his spin. And the deep freeze in Texas has left millions without power, water and food. And now there's a race against the clock as volunteers try to save thousands of turtles that are floating to the top of the water in shock and near death because they cannot survive the cold. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? My friends, I've said from day one, nothing and I mean nothing is more important right now than keeping you and your loved ones safe. That's why I've been unwavering when it comes to supporting our local health officials. Dr. Davila, Dr. Lowe, they're on the ground. And it's my responsibility to support them, to support our municipal partners. So when they ask for more time, when Mayor Tory asks for more time as Premier, I will listen. So who's listening to the businesses suffering in silence? And why do unelected health officials get to make such consequential decisions affecting our economy? Believe it or not, we've been locked down now since November 23rd. So if we open up March 8th, we'll have been locked down for 105 straight days here in Toronto GTA. Restaurants will have been locked down for 150 days. So... If you're heading into the weekend kind of feeling like you're slowly, you know, slowly going crazy, that is why. And like, you know, you'll recall, it did not take Jack Nicholson long uh, to lose his marbles in The Shining. Here's Johnny. Yeah, that's where we're all getting to. Uh, hopefully not. But I do understand that movie a whole lot more now after this thing. But I doubt, you know, the news coming out today is any surprise to business owners because it's been pretty clear that those in charge don't seem to really um, put their fate at the top of the list. No one, you know, seems to get that businesses are made and run by actual human beings who are actually suffering because of these, mes you know, measures. You know, no, they might not get COVID, but they go into bankruptcy or they lose their home or they suffer mental illness or stress or anxiety. On and on and on it goes. There is suffering. And keep in mind, even if they did get to open, it really was only retail that would only be able to operate at 25%. So it's, it's naive to think that this would have been the big fix. And I've been speaking, I speak to, I get a lot of emails and I talk to a lot of business owners and someone who I, I uh, have been speaking to regularly, the owner of a, a very, once very successful spa wrote to me about today's news and said, quote, it's too late, eight months with no income. How can my business survive without help? I had to get a credit line just to make ends meet. You know, and pre-COVID, this was a very, very profitable, successful, stable business, operating 28 years, employing about 25 people. And when you hear someone like that now talking about walking away from a business that, you know, they took all the risks, they poured their life into this, their sweat, their tears, and, and for what? Because no one in charge can show actual leadership. That's how frustrating this is. 
And I don't understand it. How is it that Ontario, how is it Ontario is the only province still using these blanket lockdowns with no ends in sight? How is it that here we are one year into this thing and the experts have not been able to figure out how to build a path to reopening safely and getting the economy running to some degree? I do not get it. Because you look at uh, Quebec. Next week, Quebec, which is also smoking with cases, they're, they're going to be going to the movies. That's their freedom. They've got almost the same number of cases as us. Why are they opening? You look at Alberta. They're opening up restaurants, gyms, all the rest of it they have for a couple of months. B.C. My friend lives in B.C., one of my closest friends, and she can go out and eat, shop. She's been doing that since May. She said, feels totally normal here. I'm like, that's nice. I'm going nuts. But that's B.C. But Manitoba, Saskatchewan, they've all figured it away to live with the virus and somehow keep things going. And here we are living in an apocalyptic state. And I don't understand why, but there's something the premier said today that just, it, it doesn't, it, you can't circle the square or square the circle, but he himself boasted this today. We still have the lowest cases per 100,000 than any region our size in North America and even smaller regions in Canada, to the exception of the Maritimes. That, those are astounding uh, numbers, and we aren't just a little bit below them, we're a lot below them. We're seeing numbers just going right down. Okay, so if we're so much more awesome than everyone else, why are we, the biggest city in Canada, still in this hard lockdown while others are opening up? If they're all so much worse off, why are they ahead of us? And how is it? that Peel and Toronto's medical officers of health, people who are not elected, can dictate decisions that have such dire economic consequences. Remember, it's the premier. The premier campaigned on fighting for the little guy. He was elected because of his pro-business stance. And what, they, the, the medical officers of health asked him to keep lockdown? So it's like, oh, okay, sure. Well, no. The premier's job is to balance the health of both the public and the economy. And yet here we are, 105 days later, still locked down. And then you look at York's medical officer of health, and he's like this outlier. They have cases of variants, more cases of variants spreading. They've had them spreading longer, and he pushed for reopening. He says businesses need breathing space. So he's fought for those businesses more than the top guy who was elected to fight for the little guy in the province of Ontario. Think about that. And Davila, who warns that she's the most worried she's ever been, has yet to show data backing up her fear-mongering. Because no data was again presented today about the lockdown. And I guess the data would be hard to get because Davila's office hasn't been tracing or tracking for months. And Dan Kelly of the Canadian Federation of Business stated, you know, and I think he's right, you know, if these variants are such a grave threat, how is it safe then for jam-packed Costco's to stay open? And the CFIB went further and actually denounced the Ford government as the, quote, the least small business friendly government in the country during the pandemic. That is a real hit to the brand. I get it. I know that the premier's job is hard, but that's what he signed up for. You have to be prepared to lead. And in this case, uh, he needs to lead. Yeah, you take the medical advice and you balance it. And I, I just don't see that balance. And will it change in two weeks? <laughs> no, of course it won't. Because all we're being warned about is this, you know, mid-March third wave of epic proportions that we're going to drown in. And so do you think Miss Dr. Davila is going to be less worried than she's ever been? 
like all of a sudden these cases and variants won't be around in two weeks? Of course they will be. I'll put money on it right now. It'll be too dangerous to open. Why? Because well, we still don't have widespread rapid testing. We still don't have aggressive tracing. We still don't have vaccines. So that is our fate. And the prime minister insisting, of course, uh, he comes out and does his little uh, Friday campaign stop outside of his cottage, and he's still saying, yes, they're coming. But we're still months away from what we re- really need right now. We have millions of doses on the way, but yet, you know, it's not going to come in until, what, April? That's a long way off. And I was thinking, like, if we have all these doses on the way, why are we still taken from COVAX? The other thing I'm wondering, if, if 14.5 million Canadians will be vaccinated by June, why has the Ontario vaccine schedule of delivery been reduced from 5 million to half in that same month of June? So the numbers don't add up, the narrative doesn't add up, but of course it doesn't have to because this government can create whatever narrative it wants if they just keep saying it over and over until it becomes their truth. So that's why we've seen the change of narrative on vaccines because the bad news is starting to stick. And Ipsos polling did some uh, research for global. 71% of Canadians are pissed. Pissed that we've fallen behind. And they don't buy the spin. And so, you know, there's a reason we're hearing this new narrative of millions of vaccines are coming. But until we actually see them going into arms, it is just going to get tougher and tougher for Trudeau. Because unlike SNC or any other scandal, this is actually stopping us from living our lives. Right? We're still in lockdowns. We can't get normal. And that's why it's hurting him. General Hillier is actually going to sh- uh, join me at 8. He says he's ready to go. Ready to go, but he has nothing to deliver. And again, when you go through the numbers with him, you know, we're really not going to start getting going until about April. And that, that to me is just unacceptable. But I want to play you something because if you want to get an idea, because I watch like a million press conferences a day, that is my life. Um, but if you want to see how ridiculous it is trying to get a straight answer from Trudeau, He was asked a very straightforward question on China today. The question was, will you and your party vote in favor of a conservative motion that declares China, you know, is committing genocide against Muslim Uyghurs? This is a vote that's supposed to take place on Monday. And then he droned on and on and on and and talked about I'm reflecting and he gave a nothing burger answer. Okay, and so the English speaking reporter who will credit from CTV rightfully called him out and listen to what happens. Respectfully, sir, that doesn't answer any of my questions. Uh, Will it be a free vote? Will you be voting? And if so, how? We are very concerned by the situation. Whatever. Are you kidding me? He looked at her and he thought, oh, I know. I'll just not answer the question and I'll not answer it in French. He just won't take a stand. He will not take a stand on this issue that is in the news every single day and is not going anywhere. Ultimately, that, um, yeah. Yeah. But that that's what we are faced with every day, trying to get straight answers from him. I know all politicians do it, but he is just precious by half, too precious by half. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Hundreds of thousands of doses arriving each week means hundreds of thousands more people protected from COVID-19. That's what I'm focused on. You, 
your family, and your community. Every Canadian who wants a vaccine will have one by the end of September. We're working with provinces and territories. We're working with companies from around the world. And we're working with our partners and allies. Good to have you here. So that was the Prime Minister speaking this morning, and he still insists that 42 million Canadians will be vaccinated by September. And uh, he better be right, because his political life hangs on this. And this drought is doing damage. And if you see the new polling by Ipsos, 71% of Canadians are angry that we are so far behind. And a majority do not buy that we will be vaccinated by September. And this week, you know, we sounded, it sounded like we got good news. You know, we wake up on Thursday and we're going to get millions of vaccines all of a sudden, but we're getting constant changes in the schedules. And I think Canadians are going to have to see these vaccines before they buy in. And Ontario, of course, has 14 million people who need shots. But when you look at the schedule and the numbers, it just doesn't add up. And the provinces can only deliver if they have the vaccines. And so that's why the numbers don't jive. And Trudeau says by June, 14.5 million Canadians will be vaccinated. But you look at our schedule, we've had to downgrade it from 5 million to 2.6 million vaccines in June. And of course, it's all contingent on if there's any more delays. The man tasked, of course, with this job is General Rick Hillier. And of course, he made pretty clear today that he can do the job, but he's got to get the product. General Rick Hillier joins me now. Good to finally have you on. Alex, my pleasure. Thank you. You know, you said very early on, I think it was your first day kind of when you introduced yourself, you said, you know, in your military training, you have to be able to pivot and move where the battle takes you. I got to think it's a pretty hard job when you just have no idea day to day uh, when these vaccines are coming or when there are going to be delays. Uh, Alex, it is, you know, and, and uh, you know, our little team comes together and says, oh, my goodness, this is not the way to roll out a vaccination program. But if we can get the vaccine, you know, if, if that's the only way that we can get the vaccines, then we'll take them that way. But what we what we were aiming to do as, you know, as we had this vaccine drought over the last month and we had very few vaccines in that month was not waste any single time. We still kept giving doses uh, to, you know, some getting to the residents and the long-term care facilities and retirement homes. And, and we still kept rolling out what we call Operation Remote Immunity in the fly-in communities up along the James Bay. And those of all three have been successes here. But what we also mm-hmm. did was work with the public health units. And, and thank goodness they're there, those 34 public health units. They do vaccination programs. They know their demographic and their populations and the unique characteristics of each of their regions across Ontario. And we work with them to help you know, our plan to help shape their plan and then exercise our plan with them in what we call knowledge sharing sessions. We've been doing all of that to make sure we're ready, you know, doing work on the allocations and how we're going to do it and doing all of that to make sure we are as ready as possible. And, and you know something, we are ready. It takes a little bit to turn the machine on and then rev it up and get to a higher acceleration rate. But we'll do that. But the number of vaccines have to increase dramatically allow, to allow that machine to be turned on. I'll give you one example, you know, and I, and I use this, that we, we asked each public health unit, there are 34 of them in our province. We asked each of them has a minimum requirement to be able to get to 10,000 vaccinations per day. And so you, obviously the math is really simple. That's 340,000 vaccinations a day that we could get to for some of the smaller uh, public health units. You know, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a leap, a bit of a, a stretch, but they can get there. But for some of the bigger ones, they're going to do much more than that we would have to have a, a lot of vaccines flow into Ontario to allow us to use that capability. I don't think we'll ever get to it, quite frankly. 
you know, there are there are a lot of variables at play here. You know, um, it, the, the picture kind of changes every single day. But, you know, now there's conversations that maybe Pfizer uh, can be just one shot, will delay the second shot. It looks like uh, the Trudeau government is trying to get that approved. Is that something that we're looking at? Is that what, what Trudeau means when he says that we'll get millions and millions of people vaccinated, that they'll have that first Pfizer shot? Or, or I, I'm trying to put the numbers together and the math just simply doesn't add up. And so I come to the conclusion, and I think a lot of people are, is that they're going to try to stretch out one shot of Pfizer just so they can get something into people's arms. Well, uh, Alex, I, I don't know what the prime ministers and the government of Canada's and health Canada's calculations are based on. Uh, so, so I don't know their, well, what they're doing from that perspective. I sat down when I heard some of those conversations about one shot of Pfizer or one shot of Moderna. Uh, might be sufficient for a very long period of time before you'd have to get your second shot. I mean, frankly, that would be music to my ears if, if mm-hmm. that would be functional and would work because think how quickly we could get to the mm-hmm. population and give them an enormous level of protection. I sat down with our uh, chief medical officer and, and the medical team there just at lunch hour just and walked through this. And really what we'd have to have is something from Health Canada and the National Association of, of Canadian for Immunization, NACI, to say, hey, this is recommended, this is what we would recommend, because so far they have not recommended that. And it appears, but I think it's early data a little bit yet. I'm not dismissing it because I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. But, you know, it's early data yet that one dose would do the job. But frankly, I I mentioned that back in late December, and I kind of got beaten from pillar to post uh, because I Mm -hmm. dare suggest it. And now a lot of people are, I'd love to see it, uh, but we'd have to see those guidelines come from NACI, I'm not sure if that's part of the federal government's calculations. And it was pretty clear in the, in the press conference earlier today that, that you said, you know, look, we're going to get more vaccines, but it's towards the later end of spring. And so April and May start to look a little brighter. But even then, um, it's only going to be, as I understand, a couple of million shots. Is that a week? Is that a month? I mean, how quickly are we going to be able to get people vaccinated? We're looking at about two and a half million per month. April, May, and June, you know, based on the allocation that we've been, we've been given from the federal government. And so that's what we base our planning on. We don't know if that will come by week, you know, broken down by week or, or not. But, uh, you know, we, well, we cannot wait to get to a point where we get that number of vaccines. And we'd love to, frankly, have more. And by then, we'll have the entire machine turned on and be ready to, to be quite literally be ready to rock and roll with those vaccines. Uh, so that's what we've been led to believe. You know, in in the meantime, we're we're averaging about a hundred. We'll get about one hundred and seventy thousand a week, and, and of course now we get a lot of those into new arms going forward here. But after about three weeks, that catches up, and we'll have to get a lot of a lot of those needles into the arm for the second time for their second dose to make sure they're 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 immunized completely. And so, you know, we we balance all of those things. These are all great challenges to have. I'd love to have them multiplied by sort of ten. The public health experts in Toronto, a couple of them put out a report saying that governments must prioritize vaccinating black Canadians and other uh, marginalized communities uh, because the data shows that they are most at risk of contracting the virus. And this would be above and beyond, let's say, an 80-year-old with underlying conditions. BC says, no, we're sticking with our, our vaccine plan despite this call. Are, would Ontario go down that route, or is it still your plan to make sure that those most vulnerable in the age categories and er, in everybody in, in uh, risk categories gets done? Well, you know, the uh, the Science Advisory Board came up with a report this past week and talked about how they had focused down on those most vulnerable 
in the outside of long-term care and retirement homes. So those most vulnerable in the population and where. And, and what they were really saying was that 50% of the deaths or more occurred in people 80 years of old uh, living in a very small number of neighborhoods. And that if we focus there, we could reduce, you know, the tragedy of, of a potential third wave or, or follow on COVID surges uh, dramatically. And so we've said that's why we want to move 80 year olds further forward and, and really start vaccinating them in March. We're not going to get them all done. That's for sure. We simply don't have the vaccines and, and we want to do that. The, one of the great strengths out of many of working with the public health units is that they know their demographics and population. So they know, they know, for example, out in Scarborough, where the neighborhoods are that have multi-generational families living together in almost congregate care settings. And they know that many of those folks, they have, if they don't work, they don't get a paycheck. And, and therefore, even if they're not feeling well, they'll go to work and the positivity rate is very high. And so they know if they get into those neighborhoods and, and, and particularly get the elderly, like the 80-year-old and, and above, they can reduce the tragic effect of COVID-19 dramatically. After that, after we get to those, then we want to really start working at the, the disproportionately affect communities that you just talked about. But that's going to take some time to really get into uh, late March, April, and then continue it all the way along. Uh, so we will get there. It just we won't get there in, in, you know, this month or the first part of March because uh, there, there just simply are not enough vaccines to do it, even though we would want to do that. What we really want to do now in March and then going into what we call our phase two of April, May and June is really, you know, start vaccinating the 80 plus year olds. There are about, like I said, are about 520,000 of them that, that have not uh, that, are, that, are, that are there that have not received the vaccine. Uh, really start vaccinating them. And as soon as we get the bulk of that group, go to 75 to 80 years old and then 70 to 75. And that's going to take us through to the end of April for sure. And, and then we can really start paying attention to some of the other populations. But if we can get that elderly population vaccinated, that really does reduce the tragedy there. And yes, we'll still come at those disproportionately affected neighborhoods. Just before I let you go, you know, there is a ton of politics at play with this issue, even though it's a health issue. And the prime minister, you know, he's stating these big promises of getting everyone vaccinated by September. You're a guy who is a pretty blunt talker. Um, is it realistic? Is it fantasy? Do you see us being vaccinated by September or is it a matter of um, measuring expectations? I think it's a matter of measuring expectations. You know, uh, like we had our confidence shaken in the supply chain of the vaccines in this last month. I think people understand why. Uh, you know, that, that confidence has got to be rebuilt. We've actually got to see the vaccines showing up and then see them showing up in the bigger numbers that are promised. And if they show up, we'll be able to vaccinate people and we'll get to the millions of people vaccinated. But we have to have the vaccines and and we can't we can work as hard as we want at a vaccination program, you know, it's kind of like a soldier going into combat. If you don't mm-hmm. have ammo, it's kind of pointless to put you there. If we don't have vaccines, uh, you know, kind of pointless to have that vaccination machine running. We need the vaccines. Bring the vaccines. We'll get them into the, into the arms of the people in, of Ontario. From your lips to God's ears. Well, no question about it. It's easy to order them, but uh, it does fall on you to deliver, and that's the tougher part of this job. So I appreciate you uh, talking with us. We'll have you on again. And um Let's get this thing going. Appreciate your time. Oh, my goodness, yes. You know, and, and I know people are frustrated because they haven't had the vaccines out there. You want to see a group of frustrated people? You want to look <laughs> at the people that work with me. We're consumed by this mission. I'm trying to get it done, and, and people are simply frustrated that we haven't had the vaccines to do it. Yep, 
my lips to God's ears are right. We want that vaccination program rolling. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. Thank you, General. General Rick Hiller, you're joining me. And it's not him I worry about. It's the guy at the top who keeps telling us stuff and uh, then doesn't deliver. I have faith that the provinces can deliver. It's the guy in the... in uh, in the cottage that doesn't seem to be doing his job. Alex Pearson, this is Global News Radio. Why is the Prime Minister so adamant that vaccines will be delivered by September? Well, because he's so far skated through this pandemic. You know, he's been given a lot of support for uh, leading us through it, but the vaccines are his Achilles heel. And no matter the talking point, folks are not buying it. In fact, new numbers by Ipsos, which did some polling for Global News on this issue, it reveals not only don't Canadians believe what the Prime Minister's saying, and we're talking a huge majority of 71% who are angry that we've fallen so far behind, there is a huge number of people across this country that do not believe we are actually getting vaccines when the Prime Minister says. Daryl Bricker is CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, also the author of Big Shift and Empty Planet, and his latest read, which is a must-read, next. He joins us now. Good to have you, Daryl. Thanks for having me on, Alex. So in the last couple of days, we've had all these vaccine numbers, and it's all sounding like great news. You know, 42 million Canadians uh, you know, inoculated by September but until people see this, they aren't buying it. Yeah, that's what the polling is showing. So 71%, as you said in your intro, uh, say that uh, they're angry that we're falling behind uh, the United States and the UK. Interestingly, because uh, it's quite clear that people are actually watching what's going on, which is a little unusual on issues like this. Uh, but the other thing we ask people is whether or not they actually believe that the government's going to be able to uh, uh, fulfill its commitment to deliver all the vaccines it says it's going to be able to deliver by the end of September. And only uh, 43% of Canadians say that they actually believe that that's going to take, uh, that's actually going to take place. So, you know, we're in a situation in which people are now adjusting their expectations and we're seeing everything from, for example, when do you think you're going to travel again to, you know, when are you going to go back to concerts and all, uh, and, and any type of public activity all being pushed off for another year. Yeah, and um, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any questioning after this last week where all of a sudden we've got great news on vaccines, which right now it's just talk. But we had these two policy, um, you know, announcements. Uh, you know, the one on guns uh, has been kind of dangled in front of us for years. That came out on uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and then of course there was. Tuesday, Wednesday, I can't remember which day it was. But then we also got this announcement on, um, you know, changing things in the justice system, which has been a long promise that they haven't delivered since 2015. Neither announcement is new, but it is kind of just been thrown out there to check off that it's been done. So there's no doubt that a, a, an election is coming at some point this spring. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think the possibility of that happening is getting further and further off. And the reason is our most recent polling shows that the Liberals' lead is down now only to three points, and they're trailing the Bloc Québécois in Quebec by a significant margin, and you don't have an election if you're the Liberal Party in those type of circumstances. Okay. And so, you know, they're hoping, I guess, to turn those numbers around, given that they're they're coming out with all these huge numbers. And I've talked to several people who very much are skeptical that, that, can, that, that that's achievable. Yeah, and the issues that they're making announcements on, I'm not saying that they're not important, but they're certainly not the focus of Canadians yeah. right now, which is pretty much unidimensional, which is when do I get my vaccine? Because people <laughs> yeah. fundamentally believe that we cannot get back to anything that resembles a normal life until most Canadians are vaccinated. And right now, the, the level of skepticism is growing that we're going to be able to achieve this anytime soon. 
Yeah, and there's a there's a lot coming in the next little while, and so I, I agree that vaccines is the only thing people care about because it's the only thing that's going to get us out from these lockdowns, which is so incredibly frustrating to be a part of, um, you know. But then he makes this announcement about you know French making sure that it's enshrined and it's protected and it's regulated across this country, which he said today again, no one cares because they just want the vaccine, um, and so we'll see where the numbers take us. The problem for Aaron O'Toole though is he's not capitalizing on this and he has to capitalize um you know while trudeau is starting to take hits at the at the the polls and he's not um he's pushing the issue on china he's forcing this motion on monday to have uh, the prime minister um, agree and declare that China's committing a genocide. The prime minister did not want to touch that issue and didn't want to touch it today. Um, but he's not capitalizing and he has to punch through. Yeah. And, and on vaccines, it's a pretty difficult issue. I'm sure, uh, you know, being able to deliver a, um, uh, a critical message at this time makes him look like he's mm-hmm. not quite a team player. But, and, and honestly, on the issue of vaccines, the real critical thing here is what politicians say about it almost doesn't matter. The facts are the facts. People are seeing what's happening in their own social circles. They're seeing it in their families. They're seeing it in their neighborhoods. You can say till the cows come home that I've got, you know, a bajillion doses, but until people actually see that it's happening, it's not happening. So it's almost like Aaron O'Toole doesn't have to do anything on that. This is, all the facts are being established at the moment by the prime minister and his government. Right. And so if you were advising, because a lot of people are are saying, maybe it's just the punditry saying, you know, where is Aaron O'Toole and all this? I mean, there's so much noise out there. It would be hard for any opposition leader, you know, to get their message through. And so what does a guy like that do? Stand back and watch or start, you know, here's an alternative. I mean, because we've got a budget coming out soonish. That could bring the government down. There's all sorts of things that could come along that could bring the government down. But what would you be telling an Aaron O'Toole to do in order to get his face out there as, as an actual alternative? Oh, well, the first thing I would suggest is that the uh, the, the likelihood that he's going to be able to get out his, his face out there, given that he's not allowed to travel and, you know, Parliament mm-hmm. has become a sham. Um, you know, I, I shouldn't say yeah. sham. I, I yeah. meant a, well, no, no, uh, it has. Just, it has. I would agree with that. Just, it's not anything like it's not what functional. it would be. Yeah, that if you're trying to cut through the way an opposition normally would, uh, very difficult to do. Uh, the, and, and, you know, Napoleon's edict, you know, never get in the way of a falling man, and the prime minister's doing mm. exactly that. So I think, you know, a little bit of patience at the moment on Aaron O'Toole's part, in spite of what all the punditry happens to say, uh, what's going to happen on the issues that people really care about are really not in his hands. They're in the prime minister's hands, and, and at, at, at the moment, uh, he's got a lot of problems, and the advantage in that situation goes to the leader of the opposition. Uh, his uh, challenge will be, when he gets asked the question, what would you do different, being able to right. put out something that's a positive vision that suggests that he would be able to manage it better. Because people don't elect the Tories for hopey, dreamy. They elect the Tories to fix the stuff the other guys screw up. So if yeah. if he's got a plan for making this work better and he's got a positive contribution to make probably now is the time. But in terms of, of whether or not people think Justin Trudeau is going doing a good job or a bad job of this, it will be established by the actual facts. There's no way to spin your way out of this. Yeah. I mean, I, either the vaccines arrive or they don't, albeit even if a few million show up in the next couple of months and we're expecting 6 million by the end of March, even the optics of that, if he can put that in the window, that would and could possibly change people's uh, view on this Alex. thing. No, there's 38 million Canadians. I know that, million. you know that, but you know, the million. It, some six million, six million doses 
equals 3 million people vaccinated. Yeah. That's less mm-hmm. than 10% of the Canadian population. We're not, yeah. getting out of it. We're not getting out of anything in those circumstances. What he's got working for them, the small window that the Prime Minister has working for him at the moment is people are still of the view that vaccines are coming in, but they're being allocated to the most essential and the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But we're very quickly, as we get into March, marking an anniversary a year that our lives have been put aside as a result of this, people are going to start saying, where's mine? And if the best the government can offer up is less than 10% of the Canadian population, and maybe at some point you're going to be getting something in the future, and oh, by the way, maybe it's September, uh, that's when it starts to become really problematic. Yeah, well, then maybe that maybe people can't be duped as as much as I think they can. And, um, you know, li- literally, if he's going to say 14 and a half million people will be vaccinated by June, it better be by June or, or I think people are going to lose it. Uh, yeah, well, and by the way, 14 and a half million people with one shot is not 14 and a half million people <laughs> vaccinated. Right? And this is the thing. I mean, the facts, it's um, very, very difficult to spin your way out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're trying, though. Oh, they're trying. Oh, definitely. And, and you know, I, I'm not sure that if I was the prime minister uh, and he was asking me what to do, I'd be advising him to, to say anything different than he's trying to say. It's a very difficult set of circumstances. But the, the problem with this is it's basic math. And, and yep. you know, people, people see the impacts of that basic math when they look across the room and they look at their spouse or they look at their kids or they visit their parents or they can't visit their parents or their grandparents or whatever. Mm-hmm. The basic math is, is what's affecting this. So unless things yeah. change in a really fundamental way, standing up and, you know, thumping your chest and saying, look, it's I've, I've achieved seven bajillion, you know, million, whatever doses, unless it's changing people's lives and we're getting out of this situation, you, you might as well say zero. Yeah, there you go. Promises are very, very difficult. Promises are are the easy thing to make. It's the delivery that uh, is when you get the uh, heavy lifting and and the difficulties. Well, we'll see um, where this takes us. It's interesting uh, to see the numbers, but uh, boy, oh boy, in for a couple of interesting months. Yeah, always appreciate your time, Daryl. So thanks for joining. Thanks for having me on, Alex. That is uh, Daryl Bricker joining us. His latest book is next. If you haven't read it, you should. Every Canadian should stop paying attention to the other guys and start paying attention to what's not going on here in this country or should be happening in this country. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point, and This is Global News Radio. All right. So Texas uh, remaining in the news uh, in a thermal freeze, minus 18, and another big snow and ice storm on its way. And the temperatures are going to rise at some point, but that will not help millions who have no running water, still food, still hundreds of thousands out of uh, heat and power. And then there are the animals, livestock that's dying. Now there's a real rush to save marine life. Uh, That includes thousands of sea turtles that are literally floating to the top of the water in the Gulf in this state of shock and near death. Lizzie Hamilton joining us now. She's a volunteer in the Sea Turtles Rescue. I appreciate your time. I'm sure this is a completely chaotic, exhausting, and emotional time. So thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. The images are absolutely heartbreaking seeing these little guys, and then you see a lot of people running in to get them. Um, so far, about, what, 5,500 have been saved. What's the scene there? Are, are you actually going in? Are people just going in and getting these and getting them out? What's this operation? How's it running? Yes. So I think like 5,500, 6,000 um, from the past three or four days alone is a, is about the right number of sea turtles that have been rescued. 
Um, the past few days have been pretty intense because the waves are getting um, really bad. Uh, here mm. in like, down in southern Texas, we are in a really windy area, especially where I'm at in Corpus Christi along um, by the seashore, the national seashore where all the sea turtles are. Um, so the waves are pretty intense. So um, there's a lot of like rock formations where these turtles are getting pushed up into. And so getting them isn't really like the easiest um, thing to do. You kind of have to, it's kind of a, a long process and maneuver for getting them. Um, sometimes if you're like more towards a, just a beach area, you can swim out there. Um, but a lot of it is trying to like lower yourself into where it's safe, um, swimming out quite far using kayaks and paddle boards, nets to try and catch them. This is almost an impossible feat because there could literally be tens of thousands of them. But what they're basically doing is they're floating to the top because they're going into shock and because their bodies can't tolerate that cold of a water. So the idea is to get them out. And so are people just taking what they can, loading them into their cars and driving them to heating centers? Yeah, something like that. So from where I was at personally with the group that I was at, and we were able to save, I think, about a thousand the past few days. Um, what we're doing is, is you get like as many sea turtles as we we can a day, which is averaging out to about like 500 a day with our volunteers of about like 20 people. Um, and then you load them up into the back of your car or SUV or truck or whatever it is that you have. Um, and we partnered with Texas Fish and Wildlife and they were able to um, set up a warehouse for us and set it to a certain temperature. Um, so that they were safe in there until transport could come. And once transport came, they were loaded up into these really large, um, like, concrete tanks, and mm -hmm. they were taken to the uh, South Padre Island National Seashore, where they're being evaluated and treated by the wildlife vet. What a stressful, not just for the people trying to go in, but what a stress for these animals, because it's not just the, the environmental threat, but just the, the, the stress of, um, you know, moving around. They don't know what's going on. You know, they're basically thawing out. And then, I mean, it's a that, that's a big feat. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine how stressful it is for them. Um, I actually get to work with some of the wildlife vets that have been treating them, and um, they have been just, like, monitoring their levels and their blood pressure and, like, their blood sugar and all that. And a lot of them do have some symptoms of stress that they've been treating, um, which is good uh, that they're treating them. But, yeah, I can't imagine how stressful it is just from, like, you know, going into shock and then being beaten around by the waves that are pushed up into rocks and then having, like, strangers handling you and then being mm -hmm. transported. I, I can't imagine how much that must stress them out. Yeah, the images of just seeing hundreds of these uh, reptiles all over the floor just on these heating pads and, and getting transferred around. Do you have any data as to what loss um, that you're looking at? And is the idea then to get them back into the water uh, at some point where they were? Yeah, so I'm not sure what the overall loss has been. I know that um, the first few days, I think that the, I think that as it went on to the middle chunk of the, I think I, there's been about four days. The first day or two, um, I know that there was less loss of life than like the last day or two because I think that unfortunately some of the turtles just aren't being able to withstand yeah. freezing cold temperatures in the water for so long. Um, but once they get to these rehab centers or these, like, rescue centers, basically the idea is that they are held for at least 24 hours, regardless of whether or not they appear to be alive. Um, that way, in case they, you know, become unstunned and get some activity, mm -hmm. 
but they're held. And then um, this Sunday, they're going to be doing, I, I believe this Sunday, they're going to be doing like a large release into the water if the temperatures are um, adequate enough um, above 55 degrees for the majority of the sea turtles. And then any that are injured, sick, um, we'll go to rehab. I'm in rehab, they're going to be keeping yeah. at the rescues until they're healthy. Is there a way that people can help uh, with donations? Um, I am, there's a link, but I'm in, uh, let me get that to you after because I'm not actually sure what the exact link is. Um, I know that no worries. I- I'll, I'll get that out and I'll make sure to get the information out, but, uh, good on you guys for doing it. It's really heartbreaking to see, but, uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, you can save as many as you can, but uh, it's tough work. It's emotional work. So I thank you for your time. Thank you. Yes. I mean, it is honestly, I think one of the best things to come out of it, regardless, like other than just the sea turtles that are living is just seeing the community come together. I've never seen so many strangers that didn't know each other. We didn't know each other's names and just lowering each other, like down 10, 15 feet drops um, in yeah. harsh conditions to get to these turtles, people from the community coming out and like helping each other. And then all of these pilots from the Naval air station um, who are, have so much going on already in their lives with like, you know, flights and flight school yeah. all together well, to um, help save these turtles. Just so many walks of life that came together. And I think that that was really nice to see, nice to see some humanity in this time. Yeah. Well, we're all thinking of you. We're watching from afar and hoping uh, for better times. Lizzie, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. That is Lizzie Hamilton. So that uh, rescue operation is underway. Boy, what a tough one it is. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, And this is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.